0: Welcome back, everybody, to What Really Matters. I'm Tablet Deputy Editor Jeremy Stern with you in Los Angeles. I'm here, as always, with Walter Russell Mead, Tablet News writer, Global View columnist, The Wall Street Journal, and distinguished fellow at Hudson. Let's start with this week's news. First story of the week. Republicans across the country are rallying behind Texas Governor Greg Abbott's legal standoff with the federal government at the southern border, intensifying concerns about a constitutional crisis amid an ongoing dispute with the Biden administration. At issue is concertina wire that the Texas National Guard has been using as a barrier between the Rio Grande and Shelby Park. In a five to four decision earlier this week, the U.S. Supreme Court sided with the Biden administration when it vacated a lower court's ruling that prevented Border Patrol agents from cutting the wire to apprehend people who had crossed the river. As the Texas National Guard and state troopers continued to roll out the wire and prevent federal agents from accessing much of the park, According to the Texas Tribune, Abbott continued to publicly challenge the ruling. He declared that Texas was under a, quote, invasion, giving the state the constitutional right to defend itself and claimed that President Biden's practice of paroling migrants into the country amounted to a refusal to enforce current immigration laws. Walter, is this news or faux news?
1: Well, it's a, it's a confused, hot mess. I mean, at one level, it is news in the sense that Southern governors who with by uh, first sending uh, illegal immigrants into blue cities by trains and buses and planes, uh, which the media said, oh, this is terrible. This is terrible. And it turns out uh, it's become a really hot issue in in these blue cities who suddenly, when they're facing the consequences of our absence of a border along our southern uh, boundary, uh, are, are feeling it and don't like it. And wonder about whether this is going to divert resources from current citizens. So I think uh, Governor Abbott is uh, sort of doing this again in a sense. They understand that even a majority of Democrats think the White House policies on migration are crazy, insane. And the more the White House is forced to try to defend it, the worse it looks. Now, somehow I... Don't think that this is Fort Sumter of a new civil war. What I notice is that technically the state remains legally able to put wire up and the feds remain legally able to cut the wire. Uh, So we're not in a place where uh, somebody is, is walking all over the Constitution one way or the other. You know it is it is the truth that ultimately the federal government is is sovereign over the border the international border it's also true that the federal government has an obligation uh president biden swore an oath to uphold the constitution one that i think he's currently not in compliance with when it comes to a complete failure to enforce existing immigration
0: laws all right our second story Over the last 10 days, North Korea has tested new strategic cruise missiles twice, tested an underwater nuclear drone for the second time, demolished the major monument in Pyongyang that symbolized the eventual goal of reconciliation with South Korea, and formally abandoned the idea of peaceful reunification, with Kim Jong-un declaring South Korea to be a, quote, enemy state and pronouncing that the country's nuclear arsenal is no longer just for deterrence. The Kim regime is well known for making bombastic threats, but the rhetoric has grown notably more aggressive in recent months, which, according to The Washington Post, is an alarming shift that some analysts say could lead Jim to justify the use of conventional or nuclear weapons against the South. Walter, news or phone news?
1: I think largely phone news. Um, You know, is anybody here surprised that North Korea views South Korea as a hostile state? that any North Korean rhetoric about peaceful reunification is just a a, a tissue of idiocy, of propaganda? Uh, Does anybody think that North Korea isn't developing all the weapons it can possibly use? But then does anybody think that North Korea isn't deterred by U.S. and South Korean forces, uh, U.S. nuclear and otherwise? Uh, You know, this does look like it is for now saber-rattling. Having said that, the North Korean government is now a good deal stronger. Um, America, The United States has essentially not had a North Korea policy for a long time. We are against North Korea having nuclear weapons. We are absolutely unable to affect their calculations on this, uh, even with the strongest uh, sanctions ever, that we've ever imposed, and even with the UN backing those sanctions, russia has blown them wide open even more than that uh, during covid the north koreans actually put themselves under much tougher sanctions when they closed their frontiers in the vain hope of stopping the pandemic uh to the point of real starvation in north korea again it didn't stop their nuclear program so the united states really does not have an effective north korea policy um uh, we talk about peaceful denuclearization of the peninsula. That's about as likely as peaceful unification on North Korea's terms. So here we are. Uh, it's uh, as for decades past. Uh, there is a military deterrence that stops war on in on the Korean Peninsula. Not really a political deterrence or political agreement. So. What happens? North Korea continues to try to become stronger, looking for some way out of the box. But in the meantime, even if these weapons don't enable North Korea to attack the South, focusing his entire economy and political strategy on nuclear weapons allows Kim to hold on to what he thinks is most important, which is the absolute uncontested dynastic power of the Kim dynasty in North Korea. Uh, it means in some sense the international sanctions protect him. Uh, he does not want a a normal trading relationship with the United States or with China. Uh, North Korea is a guppy in economic terms it has I think a GDP last time I looked was about 22 billion dollars but that's you know it's very hard to Uh, make sense of when they don't really have a currency that means much and and, and the economy is on such a strange foundation. But in any case, there are dozens of companies in the United States, China, and Japan that are bigger than the size of the entire North Korean economy. So to open his country to the world would really mean a fundamental uh, shift in power inside the country. He's not going to do that. Here we are. About all we can do is make sure that we and our allies are strong enough armed and are prepared to resist uh, any aggression so that hopefully, as has been the case since the 1950s, aggression won't occur.
0: On those last couple of points, I mean, what do you make of reports that North Korea is increasing its cooperation with Russia and Iran, even as their relations with China, I think, don't seem to be all that steady? Are, Are the North Koreans a major part of this axis of resistance or are they still kind of an outside irritant?
1: Well, look, they're certainly, obviously, they're helping um, uh, Russia and Iran, and we should assume that there. if there are any issues left in the Iranian nuclear program, the North Koreans are willing and able to help them get over that. So we should probably re- be reducing our estimates of the time it would take Iran to, um, to go from having produced a critical mass of fissionable material to being able to put it in bombs and put those bombs on delivery vehicles. I think that's a, that's a real likelihood. Beyond that, um, the North Koreans are really happy to have a relationship with Russia because they don't wanna be entirely dependent on China. Uh, their whole goal is total sovereign independence in a sense, they might be John Mearsheimer's favorite country. They want to make domestic politics illegal, uh, you know, irrelevant in their country, and they want to pursue pure sovereignty um, without regard for any other concerns. Uh, so, being able to kind of rely on Russia and Iran for additional sources of income and diplomatic backing reduces their dependency on China. It, by the way, significantly reduces any chance the United States might have to play some kind of role you know Trump uh, president trump's flirtation with um, kim was in part about north korea's desire to put some distance between itself and china and that was an opportunity for the united states i think it, it you know I, I i don't think kim was willing to do the minimum that we would want and we weren't do, uh, weren't willing to do the minimum that he would want but it was interesting uh, now the North Koreans have an alternative to China. They are clearly making progress on all fronts uh, except economic. And so uh, uh, we're our ability to control that situation or influence it has, I think, diminished.
0: All right. Final story of the week. Climate activists have declared victory after the Biden administration announced it was freezing new approvals to export liquefied natural gas, Canceling a planned three day sit in at the U.S. Energy Department. Opponents of massive export terminals, such as one planned in Louisiana, argue LNG infrastructure ensures the use of fossil fuels for decades to come and presents a litmus test for Biden's commitment to fighting climate change. More than a dozen companies poised to liquefy natural gas for shipment overseas were in the queue for federal permission to send the fuel to some of the world's biggest buyers when the Energy Department called. A halt to new approvals, according to Bloomberg. These would be exporters now face an unknown delay while bureaucrats analyze the potential impacts increased production of LNG would have on the climate. News or phone news?
1: Well, phone news if you think it's going to help the climate. Um, you know, what this just means is that people in Argentina, where they have a lot of shale reserves, in the, in the Gulf states, in Russia, and China, are going to have. Less economic competition from the United States and will be able to sell their own increased production of LNG at higher prices. So essentially what the Greens have managed to do is weaken the Biden administration, because this is unpopular, um, stir up some some focused opposition that would include swing states, possibly like Pennsylvania, uh, and at the same time put money and power into the hands of the enemies of everything we hold dear. Um, you know, you can call that a victory if if that's the sort of thing that makes you happy. You know, in a sense, the the fundamental problem for the climate movement is that there is no viable political path toward the type of of transition that it would like to see and, and believes that we need. So it finds itself chasing various illusory solutions and getting itself all wrapped up uh, in in the pursuit of them things that don't make you happy when you get them will not solve the problem that you're worried about. Uh, I can understand their frustration uh, when you believe that the world is in imminent uh, danger of irreversible and unsustainable climate change, and you see an LNG terminal going up. I can, I can understand that you want to do something about it. But I think the environmental movement has been much better at mobilizing uh, political supporters than it's been at Duke taking steps that that will in fact make a real difference in dealing with the climate issue
0: all right that does it for this week's news let's have the big conversation so By now, I'm sure most of our listeners are aware that earlier this week, three Americans were killed and at least 34 were injured at Tower 22, a small base near the Jordanian-Syrian border in a drone attack by an Iranian proxy militia. It was the first time since the outbreak of the Gaza War that Iran's proxies have killed Americans. It also hit a little close to home, I should say, for nine months in 2017 and 2018. My EOD company in the army ran soft support out of al garrison in Syria, which you accessed via Tower 22 and also train the Jordanians there. The public response, at least so far from the Biden administration, has been a little mixed. A senior administration official told The Wall Street Journal that at this stage, quote, the United States does not believe that Iran was intending to start a wider war with the attack. Another official told Axios after the attack that the administration, quote, believes a ceasefire in Gaza is key to reducing regional tensions. And all this comes as CIA chief Bill Burns was sent to the region to broker a potential deal in which Hamas would release the remaining hostages in exchange for the IDF withdrawing from all of Gaza's cities, pausing all fighting for six weeks and releasing three times as many Palestinian prisoners. Now, it's of course possible that the White House is saying a lot of this in public while quietly preparing for a significant retaliatory measure against Iran. But it does seem to fit a pattern going back to the Obama administration in which we kind of go to what seem like excruciating lengths to ensure responses to Iranian violence, even in this case against Americans, are, quote, proportionate and non-escalatory, even if it means they're not really that effectively deterrent. And the big development in the last few days seems to be that at least the initial U.S. response to the Iranian-backed killing of American soldiers is American pressure on an ally that's currently fighting an Iranian proxy to accept what in Israeli politics would be considered battlefield defeat. Now, in past episodes of the podcast, you've alluded, Walter, to the role that the 2015 JCPOA, or the Iran nuclear deal— has played in the administration's handling of Iran. And I thought it might be a good opportunity to go back about a decade now and really revisit that deal in which senior members of the current administration all also played a significant role. You personally testified to Congress in 2015, warning of the dangers the deal represented. So tell us what Obama and now Biden administration officials saw in that deal beyond a simple non-proliferation agreement. And how did Israel and let's say the Saudis too fit into the world the Iran deal made?
1: Well, Jeremy, I think uh, I should at least say something about um, what you say at the beginning of that introduction. You know, that you sort of begin with with a lot of, of thoughts about the present, and then we want to go back uh, back almost 10 years in time. Look, I, I think... Um, there are a lot of things tangled up in in your analysis of what's happening right now, and we may know a little bit more by the time our listeners see the pot hear the podcast. But um, I, I think we should straighten some of that out. You know, the uh, the Burns negotiations are not necessarily aimed at providing a battlefield victory for. Hamas um, if Israel pauses for six weeks and gets but gets the hostages back and then at the end of the six weeks the ceasefire is over um that's I wouldn't call that quite a defeat uh obviously uh, Israel would have to think hard about how it resumed fighting and under what conditions and for what purposes um, but it's you know in itself in outline that is not a um a proposition that an israeli government i think would dismiss out of hand and as far as i can tell the netanyahu government has not and i suspect that that hamas is going to be the one that that raises the most objections to this um to this proposal so i don't so i think to kind of see a sort of unified field theory of the administration looking to respond with a capitulation is a bit premature here and not and not fully justified by by what we're seeing. And at the same time, uh, Biden has the president has said he has decided on a form of retaliation and said that it will be serious. Um, the question of whether he attacks Iran directly or attacks, Proxies, you know, what does he do? I think we have to see what he does before we can start analyzing exactly how it fits into the changing landscape of U.S. policy. You know, whether in fact it is so weak that it invites more attacks, or it is, as he would hope, nicely judged to be strong enough to deter attacks but not so provocative as to launch a war. That's a very difficult target to hit, but let's let's see what he does before we we leap to a judgment about about it. And at the same time, um, I think the notion that you know the that the administration folks are floating that uh, you know we can relax because Iran is not trying to launch a regional war is you know frankly a little bit idiotic. Of course, they're not trying to launch a regional war. If Iran wanted to launch a regional war, there are a lot of things it could do that would guarantee that that would happen. You know, they could attack U.S. troops. They could send Iranian forces over the border and slaughter U.S. troops in Iraq they could mount a whole series of attacks they could hezbollah could join, could attack us forces in the mediterranean with some of the 100,000 plus missiles you know there are a lot of things if iran wanted to start a war it could start a war so it's kind of a uh, you know it's a red herring to say our, our clever analysts who have you know been been discerning all of these careful things and filtering them through our incredibly sophisticated political analysis of finally determined with a 78 probability that, you know, that's just, you know, just those folks could just stay home and stop working. It, it doesn't really matter. It's obvious. Uh, but at the same time, well, you know, what is Iran trying to do? It's trying its own version of China's cabbage leaf strategy which is to say, to keep advancing your power bit by bit, but slowly enough so that you don't trigger an overwhelming American response. And gradually you create a a, a climate or a situation in which you are so much better positioned than the Americans that the Americans don't have many choices and they're all bad which makes it then likely that they'll continue to retreat even as you begin to escalate your responses. So the Iranians have a strategy. The strategy is to keep pushing the envelope against the United States. Uh, It's a little bit of a combination of boiling the frog slowly, you know, turning up the water gradually. Um, And it's also about gradually picking away at American confidence, at the confidence of our allies And this strategy by and large is working uh so and you know i don't act i think the administration at least in its um public declarations is overestimating the danger of iran starting a a a regional war again they don't want a regional war what actually, you don't then interpret that to say, well, therefore, I don't have to really do very much now because uh, a small demonstration of my unhappiness uh, will be enough to make my point. Actually, what you need to do is you say, no, you've, you've hit a line that will start a regional war uh, if you if you keep going in this direction. And I'm going to demonstrate that to you by giving you a taste of my readiness and my willingness to act. My guess is the administration is, is going to fail that test, but I'm not going to predict it. You know, I'm not going to oracularly declare that that's what will necessarily happen. The, the administration has, has, like the Obama administration, and now we're getting back to some of your historical points, has long thought, that the best way out of the Middle East, and, and, and we start from here, from the day President Obama took office to the actual current moment in the White House, it's been the overriding conviction of uh, American administrations. And by the way, I think it's probably been shared by a majority of the American people that the less engagement and risk the United States has in the Middle East, the better. And so the question is, how do you reduce the vulnerability, our vulnerability to war while protecting essential national interests, however we define them? And the administration uh, has tended, I think, to underplay the long-term nature of our interests in the Middle East and overplay the possibility that with some kind of detente with Iran, we could get out. Why do I think they underplay the long-term nature of our interests? I would say there are two things that we have to really worry about in the Middle East. Uh, One actually remains oil and gas. Yes, we ourselves don't import this stuff, but Japan does, China does, India does, Europe does. Uh, The world economy would be in a terrible uh, tailspin if oil and gas from the middle east were no longer available on on world markets and you know if you think the united states could have a healthy economy with uh, financial and economic collapses and political crises in japan and india and and europe i i wish i could live in the beautiful land that you inhabit but um you know, our banks would not do well. Our companies would not do well. Our stock markets would not do well. Our ability to get supplies in a global supply chain would not do well. It would not be pretty, uh, and likely, given all these factors going together, the chances of some kind of war breaking out in the Far East and in in, um, in Europe that that we would have a hard time staying out of, I, I think, would 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 dramatically increase. So you know there there reasons we do care even if we don't need the oil but there's another reason and i'm afraid again somewhat unintentionally but but very strongly the biden administration has made this one stronger some of you are probably old enough to remember the war on terror that is to say some of you were are old enough to remember when radical islamic jihadi islamist jihadi groups were a clear and present danger to the lives and security of people in the United States and in other countries around the world. Now, the Bush administration, uh, which did not cover itself in glory with Iraq, did in fact succeed. A combination of military, political, and intelligence and policing operations managed to put that danger somewhat on the back burner. Um, The uh, jihadi movements were felt that they were losers and, and more public opinion in many of those countries saw these sort of religious, revolutionary, radicalizing movements as both kind of disgusting, like ISIS beheading and raping people and selling slaves, but also losers, you know, they, the ISIS, oh, we're the new caliphs. We're going to conquer the world. You know, we're going to show the West what's what. And then the West crushes them more or less like a bug. You know, that's not a great look. Unfortunately, we've taken that for granted. We've said, ah, that's done. All right. So now what's happened in the last couple of years? Well, I hate to tell you this, but the Taliban defeated and humiliated the United States of America in Afghanistan. Uh, and it was not simply that we withdrew from Afghanistan. It's that we withdrew in a very disorderly, and one could even use the term shameful uh, way. And so lots of all over the world, people who were drawn toward this kind of ideology and worldview kind of perked up their head, pricked up their ears a bit. Hmm, good news from Afghanistan. We've also seen running across Africa, we don't pay a lot of attention to this in our our news. We're more interested in farm strikes in Paris than, uh, um, you know, revolutionary militant movements sweeping across large spaces of Africa. But the jihadi groups have had a tremendous amount of success Again, we can, in in some part, I think, thank uh, the brilliance of President Obama and his approach where um, the attack on Libya and the destruction of the Qaddafi government just released large numbers of jihadi fighters and enormous quantities of weapons that have ever since then been spinning out across the African continent and have taken over substantial chunks of territory and revenue and created a sense of exhilaration and coming victory now we add on to that october 7th and the hamas attacks and again you know i i I think if the israelis can continue to fight i don't think hamas is going to win a military victory here but it's not clear whether they will and in any case right now the psychological impact of this is reverberating here the arab governments egyptians the saudis they haven't been able to do anything in decades Now, suddenly, Hamas, with the axis of resistance, has risen up and killed the Israelis in their own homes. And now, for weeks, it's been fighting a very, very tough battle. Think about the contrast between this battle and the six-day war, when in six days, the Israelis just swept across the Middle East. Now, you know, in six weeks, they're not taking, retaking the very small and not very heavily armed, in a conventional sense, Gaza Strip, okay? Our jihadis around the world, radicals around the world, alienated young people looking for something to believe in and around the world are seeing something new. The Iranians are pumping money into this. I don't know where they get all that money, uh, but they're getting it. Uh, the Russians during the Cold War were big supporters of this kind of terror. Uh, I would not be surprised to see Putin sort of throwing in a bit of support here and there. And the Chinese, by the way, have been very, very good about disciplining and crushing their own Islamic uh, population, the Uyghurs, so much so that I think they're 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 happy to play with fire outside of China. Because they're increasingly confident they can control it inside, and they know that various Islamist governments won't say a word or raise a hand against China. So, oil and terror. We are tied to the Middle East in ways we do not necessarily want to be, but we can't just change our minds and leave. Now, beyond that, the hope that we could get out of there by somehow making a deal with Iran I think has always, you know, has always had two problems. Number one, the Iranians don't want to help us do that. My own view was, even when they signed the JCPOA, what they're saying is, fine, we'll pause our nuclear stuff for a while, and you'll give us a ton of sanctions relief, and we'll use that money to build up the Houthis and Hezbollah and Hamas and all of our proxies and increase our influence and develop, we'll develop other things. We won't develop the nuclear stuff, but there there are lots of technological things, part of modernizing our weapons industry that we will work on. And then perhaps someday when we're better armed, we'll cheat a little bit on the nuclear deal. We don't know. But I don't think there really was a moment when people in, in, in Tehran said, ah, President Obama has demonstrated such enormous sincerity and clarity of moral vision that we iranians we really do we can work with him and we will be better off working with him that's not how they've thought it's not how they've acted now president trump i think uh, came in and saw correctly that the obama approach was a, was an unhappy dead end but didn't i don't think in the time he was in office came up with a coherent alternative approach My own sense is that uh, what we need to be doing, what we should have been doing uh, from the 20-teens on is working with our own uh, partners and allies. I would certainly include the Israelis. It would certainly include the Saudis, the Emiratis, and some others uh, to build up a regional coalition that's capable of balancing Iran. Uh, And they would have our diplomatic backing and we would provide military and political support. But the idea would be that this would reduce our liabilities in the Middle East because we were creating an effective local coalition that could do the job for us if a job needed to be done. And they wouldn't do it because we were saying we were trying to make them. They'd be doing it because we were helping them do what they wanted to do. And I think that has been the great diplomatic and political opportunity and the best way to reduce America's commitments and liabilities in the Middle East since 2012. And tragically, I think tragically, both Ob- President Obama and President Biden have, have just failed to see it. Uh, they thought they saw some other things that they liked better. So, you know, I think President Biden, to give him credit, did understand uh, once Iran rejected the JCPOA and once Iran had again um, demonstrated its unrelenting hostility, uh, did realize that he actually did need to work more closely with with Israel and, and Saudi Arabia. And to this day, while we may not like everything the administration has been doing in response to the October 7 attacks, I think most people would say his policies both toward the Saudis and toward the Israelis are significantly better than they were in the first year plus of his term. You know, something has changed in their thinking. Not enough, but something significant has changed, and we need to acknowledge that if we're going to going to have a good analysis of what's going on.
0: All right, that does it for the big conversation. Let's end on the tip of the week. (music) On a lighter note, Walter, you've recently returned from the Dominican Republic. It's maybe a much more accessible destination for many of our listeners than Taiwan or India or your other mainstays, so... This week, give us your Dominican Republic travel tip.
1: Jeremy, as you note, I will go anywhere for peace, you know, to, to advance the cause of peace, even the Dominican Republic. But I'd say if any of our listeners uh, find themselves in the Dominican Re- Republic, one thing I I'd really strongly suggest that you do is ask if there are any passion fruit smoothies anywhere mm-hmm. near. I don't know that they're going to be the same everywhere, but. But where I was, they had these passion fruit smoothies with coconut juice that were to die for. And I had to to swim extra laps in the pool to uh, to offset them. And it was worth every stroke.
0: All right. There you have it. Thanks to our producer, Noam Bloom. Thanks to Will Cummings at Hudson and my co-host, Walter Russell Mead. I'm Jeremy Stern. We'll see you next week. And until then, please consider rating the podcast and leaving a review.